How aware are you? You're probably aware that mammograms are a great way to detect breast cancer. And that regular, moderate walking can be good for heart health. But are you aware that the fifth most common cancer in the United States is uterine cancer? And that the average age at diagnosis is 60? Well, I definitely wasn't when I was diagnosed with endometrial cancer at the age of 32. And that's exactly what inspired this podcast. We are Mary and Alex, a mother-daughter duo engaged in multi-generational dialogue surrounding subjects related to gynecologic cancer, women's healthcare, and various other topics that impact our daily lives. We are Down There Aware. All right, welcome back to another episode of Down There Aware. Um, we are so excited today to be joined with the American Cancer Society Tides of Change Gala Survivor of the Year of 2021, Ms. Morgan Gaynor. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit just about your cancer story, what type of cancer you had, how you got your diagnosis? Sure. So um, I was diagnosed September 17th of 2019 uh, during surgery. I was 30 years old and I had stage four ovarian cancer. Uh, Specifically, I had low grade, um, which I can tell you a little bit about later. But um, I had recently turned 30. I was not in a serious relationship. So I went to my um, primary doctor and my OBGYN and asked them if I would potentially be a candidate for freezing my eggs. Um, I saw them both on the same day. They basically said I was the vision of health (laughs) and commended me for being proactive, for thinking about it at such a young age. Uh, Typically, women start thinking about it in their later 30s. So I was kind of I thought ahead of the game. Um, I made my first appointment with a fertility specialist on my lunch break. I thought it was going to be no big deal, just, you know, like a quick consultation and more um, concerned about the cost (laughs) than the actual procedure because it's, you know, expensive. Um, And it was during that first ultrasound that she noticed I had several growths in my pelvis area. So Um, I didn't really, you know, comprehend what the measurements she were saying were, uh, Mm um, but she was saying the word cyst a lot and a lot of millimeters (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, in hindsight, they were pretty big about the size of like a man's watch, um, on both ovaries, uh, and anterior and posterior to my uterus. So just Mm -hmm. kind of all over that area. Um, she asked me, you know, about my history, if I had uh, endometriosis or if I'd ever been diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome and I had not. Um, and basically the next course of action was to follow up. And if they grew, I was going to get an MRI. So they did. And so I did. And it was the next day after that MRI that I got the call that, um, I had signs consistent with cancer. So we immediately went to Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, They have an office in New Jersey near my house and met with a surgeon. And like from start to finish, uh, it was only a matter of weeks before I had my surgery. Um, And that's, yeah, that's when we realized I had stage four. It had spread throughout my entire abdomen um, and into my chest. Mm -hmm. So, wow. um, Yeah. 
I was and very so, lucky. They were sorry. Yeah. I was, they were, I was no. very lucky. They were able to take it all out like during surgery. Um, mm-hmm. But if I had waited much longer, I probably would have had a different outcome. Wow. And so you had no like symptoms or anything looking back that you were like, oh yeah, that probably was a symptom, but I just wasn't told about it. Yeah. So at the time I was like, I had no symptoms. This is so crazy. Um, but looking back, I was really bloated. Um, I thought that I had just gained weight in a different way than I normally do. I had had Mm -hmm. a ski accident about nine months prior to this. And, um, so I hadn't been working out the way I normally did. I, I injured my back. Um, so, but like looking at photos, my arms were still thin. My face was still thin, but my stomach was sticking out. Like I was four or five mm. months pregnant. Um, and you know, I, I live at the Jersey shore. So I was at the beach every weekend trying to suck it in and you know, <laughs> not, not be obvious that like, you know, my stomach was sticking out, but yeah, in hindsight, I was very bloated. Um, mm. But it happened quickly. Like, I don't think it was for very long. I think it was those last, you know, couple months that it was there. Uh, but yeah. I probably had this illness for years and had no mm. idea. Wow. Man, that. Yeah. And, there, you know, I was listening to one of your episodes um, mm-hmm. where you were talking about your, your menstrual cycles. And I could totally mm-hmm. relate. Um, I always had a very intense, heavy, painful period. Um, Mm -hmm. and I complained to my doctors, I started on birth control at a young age to try and manage, uh, those symptoms. And, you know, in hindsight, like looking at my records, we, he always wrote, um, regular periods. So my periods happened regularly, you know, they were (laughs) 28 to 30 days, you know, I never had inconsistency with my periods. But my normal was so much more intense than somebody else's normal. And I didn't really know at the time that that could be a sign of something else going on. Yeah. And we're (laughs) right. And we're often told, oh, it's, you know, your mother had really intense periods and her mother had really intense periods. And so it's just kind of your lot in life that that's what you're going to have. And so I know that I accepted that and just was kind of like, okay, whatever. And then even at the point where um, I had had an internal ultrasound, and they saw what they thought were fibroids. And my um, gynecologist at the time was like, oh, you're too young. This is nothing. It's just going to be fibroids. We'll clean you out. Not that big of a deal. And then it was after that surgery that I was diagnosed. And so, you know, very similar to you that, it, um, you know, do you think your age had um, a factor in being dismissed and being not taken necessarily as seriously as maybe someone else who's typical age of diagnosis? Yeah. So the average age for ovarian cancer is about, I, I want to say 65, um, postmenopausal age, not, mm-hmm. you know, as common in younger women. Um, the, the strain of cancer I have is called low grade serous carcinoma, um, which is one of the more common of the rare types of ovarian cancer and tends to affect younger women. But even that, the median age is 45. So at 30, mm-hmm. I was still fairly young for this, this diagnosis. Um, and I remember when we were, you know, going from the MRI to the surgery, like those weeks leading up, my mom is, is a nurse and knows lots of doctors. So she was calling like everyone Mm -hmm. she knows and asking their opinion. And they were all like, 
she's so young, there's no way, there's no such thing as bilateral ovarian cancer. Um, and wow. I was like, I go to the doctor very regularly. I always went every mm-hmm. year. Um, I'd had irregular pap smears in college. So there were several years that I went every six months. Um, so I was convinced if I had anything, we were going to be catching it early, but right. that just wasn't the case because a pap smear doesn't detect ovarian cancer. Right. And I think that's one of the, you know, even at how, um, f- up front you were and how, you know, well, you're taking care of yourself, you were it was still stage four, it still had time to grow and metastasize and, um, and, you know, become bigger than it would if it was, um, if there was something that could detect it, um, which is just crazy. So you mentioned you had a nine plus hour surgery. What all did that entail? Um, you know, did they have to remove your ovaries or were they able to save anything? Um, so unfortunately I was too late to freeze any eggs. Um, my ovaries were completely taken over with cancer. Mm. Um, yeah, my nine plus hours of surgery, I had a full hysterectomy, um, including my cervix, everything was removed. Um, I had my omentum, which is a layer of fatty tissue in the abdomen removed. Um, I had, uh, a resection of my colon, about a third of mm. my colon. Um, I had 15 centimeters of my small intestine removed. Mm. There was growth on my bladder, liver, um, diaphragm, and then I had uh, uh, lymph nodes in the you know groin area, and then that was where it had spread to in my chest. Um, so it was kind of everywhere. I was very, very lucky. They were able to, um, resect my bladder and, and kind of put it back together without me having to need mm-hmm. a bag. And same with my colon. I woke up without a colostomy bag, which was incredible to be honest. I was expecting yeah. bags and tubes everywhere and, and had none of that. So I was really, really lucky. Wow, oh, man, that is quite an endeavor to have all of those. And, you know, it's so intricate and that's why it took so long. But, man, um, you know, I'm sorry they had to go through that because it is it, there's just no explaining it. And, you know, as someone who I was diagnosed at 32, not a serious relationship, wasn't ready to have kids. Um, and so to have the same, you know, um, situation where I they kept my ovaries because, uh, you know, they didn't want me to go into menopause. But I saw a fertility specialist and he was like, yeah, we're not going to take your eggs. There's a chance that there's microscopic cancer that we could spread. And, you know, he went into all this and, um, and it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, if you, as a young woman are expecting that your life's going to be a little bit different. Um, so I'm just sorry that you had to go through that. It's not anything anyone wants to deal with. Yeah. Thanks. It's nice having people to talk to that can relate. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, it really is because people, your friends, they try to support you and they, they try to do, you know, what's best. And, um, I remember my best friend, probably a year after my um, surgery and diagnosis, she got pregnant with her second child. And she was really hesitant to tell me just because she was afraid of how it would make me feel. And I was like, it's your life. I'm excited for you. You shouldn't, you know, don't hold back. Um, thank you for considering me and, you know, considering how you're going to tell me, but yeah, people just don't know how to respond. Yep. It's a challenge. Uh, So tell us a little bit about your advocacy work. I have been, I've been scoping your website and man, you are quite the warrior for ovarian cancer. Thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this maybe is something that happens to a lot of us when we're diagnosed, we try and figure out 
why or a purpose or um I just really wanted to try and make something good come out of it um so I remember like sitting in the hospital with my mom and like having this conversation and I've always kind of been somebody that's involved in community service and in my community. Um, I joined the the local junior league, uh, the junior league of Monmouth County in 2015. And, you know, she, my mom kind of was the one who was like, you're gonna, you're gonna get online. You're going to make noise. You're going to make people learn about this. And I took it to heart and I've definitely run with it. <laughs> um, within, a few months of my diagnosis, I did like a Facebook fundraiser and raised $10,000 for ovarian cancer research through the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, which is one of the largest organizations in the country for ovarian cancer. Uh, since then, I've joined the board of the first U.S.-based charity that's dedicated to fundraising for specifically low-grade ovarian cancer. It's called mm-hmm. STAR. It stands for survive, uh, thrive, advocate for research and awareness. I think I said that a little out of order, but (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of acronyms. Um, And, you know, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing experience. Um, We have been around since March of 2020 and I joined the board in 2021. Unfortunately, since our founding, two of the three founding members have passed away from Mm -hmm. ovarian cancer. Um, So as much as we miss them, we are, you know, just advocating that much harder in their memory, you know, keeping them alive that way. Um, Our goal this year is to raise $200,000 during September, which is National Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. And we are hard at work this summer. We're really excited. So, um, yeah, one of my my friends um, is very involved with the American Cancer Society in New Jersey. And when they were having the gala in 2020, she wanted to honor me, but obviously because of COVID um, that didn't happen. So we pushed it to 2021 and it was really a special evening. Well, and what we have seen is um, there's such a need for funding for research. There just isn't enough research. Um, I saw you on your website wearing a shirt about not all cancers are pink. And um, certainly we want breast cancer research. We've lost friends to breast cancer, friends and family. Um, But we also want other uh, cancers to get the funding. We've seen that great need, especially since Alex's diagnosis. I totally agree. My aunt, who's not my biological aunt, she's married to my uncle. She was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer uh, in the early 2000s. She's still here and doing amazing. Awesome. Um, but breast cancer, you know, is always close to my heart. I did the Susan G. Komen walks. Mm-hmm. I, you know, fundraised. I, you know, bought the pink (laughs) every October. And then, you know, I got a different cancer that just receives Mm -hmm. a drop in the bucket compared to the attention and fundraising. Obviously breast cancer is so much more common. One in eight women are diagnosed Mm -hmm. with breast cancer, whereas ovarian cancer is about one in 78. Um, Mm -hmm. But because we're rare, it's just so much harder to get those dollars and get the you know, researchers doing the work and I'm sure right. you, know, you totally understand with your cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, there's, um, it is more prevalent in society to, you know, to get breast cancer and rather than, um, a gynecologic cancer, but because, um, 
breast cancer symptoms tend to be a little more visible, a little more noticed, you know, um, mammograms are a great tool. It doesn't get all of it, but it's a great tool. Um, and they've done a lot of genetic research with BRCA and all of those. Um, but oftentimes, I mean, I, uh, was doing some research in ovarian cancer. I think, I don't know, it was a large percentage of women are diagnosed at stage four. It's very, very rare to catch it early because symptoms are so either minimal or they're just kind of washed away as well. I went bloated or, you know, I had an accident. I'm not exercising. I'm gaining weight. I'm getting older. So my weight's going in a different place and um, we can just kind of excuse it away. Same with my um, uterine cancer. It was, I've always had heavy periods. It's just another heavy period. It is what it is. You know, I'll get on birth control again and I'll figure it out. Um, and it's just perpetuated because it's so much more difficult to recognize. And like you said, a pap smear, it's great for cervical cancer, but it doesn't test for uterine cancer. It doesn't test for ovarian cancer. It's, you know, uh, vaginal cancer or vulvar cancer. I mean, there's just not a test. <laughs> so, right. um, yeah. it, and I think it, because, because the symptoms are so vague and can be uh, misconstrued to be other things. I think that's a lot of it. Uh, my sister, Alex's aunt, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer stage four in 2010, and she only lived seven weeks after the diagnosis. I mean, it was far gone, but she was having some back pain. She had bloating and just kind of uh, passed it off as some other things. And I think that's a lot of the issue with ovarian cancer. Um, there's not anything really definitive and specific that they can point to like a lump in your breast um, and not the testing like the BRCA testing and the mammograms and it just makes it so much more difficult. Yeah, for sure. I'm very sorry to hear about your sister. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, the survival rate for ovarian cancer is very low. It, uh, the yeah. average five years is less than half of women mm. survive five years. Um, which is just crazy to me, you know? Um, yeah. and it's been that way for a long time. So hopefully, mm -hmm. you know, we can start raising awareness, maybe raising some money and trying to find some new, new treatment. I, and, and of course I always feel to any cancer research, is helpful for any cancer. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, like the medications I'm on are all breast cancer medications. <laughs> wow. Yeah, my well, chemo, my hormone you. blockers. Yeah. yeah uh, you talked about your surgery. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about subsequent treatment that you've had? You sure. Yes. So about six weeks after my uh, surgery, I started chemo. I did, um, one round every three weeks for six mm. cycles. So that went from October until February of 2020. Um, and it was very intense chemo. At one point, um, we actually lowered it a little bit because the side effects were so intense. And, you know, when my doctor was suggesting that I, I was like, is that okay? And he, he says to me, Morgan, you're getting enough chemo for two people. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's a very intense treatment. Um, and then once I finished chemo, I started a hormone blocker. It's a little 
daily pill that I take to block estrogen because my specific tumors were estrogen fed. Um, and so I'm on that daily and, you know, there's a couple of different kinds there. A lot of breast cancer patients take them too. There's letrozole, uh, exomestane and anastrozole. I've had the pleasure of trying all three. Uh, (laughs) So finally anastrozole is what I landed on that works best for my body. And I'm still cancer-free two and a half years later. So very awesome. Very happy. That is incredible. So how, um, what kind of um, surveillance plan are you on for checkups and how frequently do you go? And will you be on that hormone blocker forever? How does that work? Um, so I go every three months for blood work. Um, I see my oncologist twice a year and my surgeon twice a year. So they kind of stagger it. Um, and I'm on the annual CAT scan schedule, which is very exciting. Um, it is. <laughs> you know, it, it's a lot of anxiety, those like two weeks leading up to a CAT scan. So my doctor had said we could either go annual or, or do it twice a year. And I really, for me, felt annual made more sense as long as I was still getting yeah. that blood work because that stress is just also not good for me. <laughs> right. Well, I right. think the stress leading up to it and then the stress afterwards waiting on results. Um, it's a lot for you all to have to deal with. Yeah. So, so the annual schedule seems to be working well so far. Um, and as far as the hormone blocker, I think I've heard both things. I believe my doctor told me five years, um, mm-hmm. other women that I've spoken to that have had my cancer, um, have said that they will be on it forever. So Mm. I'm not sure if I'm remembering it right or not. (laughs) Mm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, you know, I feel like every time I see my oncologist, it's a little bit different. It's a tweak here. It's a tweak there. And I mean, I um, was on the six month schedule and then I just got graduated to, uh, well, I was on the three month schedule and I got graduated to six months with a scan annually but then one of my scans showed something a little weird. So then I had to get a PET scan and then that showed something a little weird. And then, and you know, it's just like this, everything and what it ended up being, and I'm grateful. I really am grateful that they sent me for further testing and things like that, but it ended up being, cause I still have my ovaries that it just happened to be that I was ovulating right when they were doing the scan. And so they perceived this cyst of natural, you know, ovulation to be well, potentially cancerous. And so, you know, it's just, um, kind of never ending, right? Like you're just in the yeah. cycle of, okay, I, I'm going to deal with it. And you're right. I have never really experienced anxiety in my life until cancer. Everything is just makes you so jittery. And even like I have to have an MRI not related to my cancer next week. And I'm just like, I know it's going to be miserable and I'm going to be so anxious out of my mind, even though it has nothing to do with my cancer, who knows what they're going to find. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't know about you, but I feel like now my only anxiety is cancer. Like nothing else really stresses me out anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything feels like, oh, I can handle that. I handled cancer, whatever, wash it under the bridge. <laughs> exactly. Well, and oftentimes I kind of check myself like, okay, this isn't as big as my cancer diagnosis. Like whatever. I can figure this out. (laughs) We've already had the worst news I think we'll ever get. (laughs) Yeah. For real. For real. Oh man. It's crazy how parallel yet different, you know, we had completely different kinds of cancer 
but the same kinds of experiences, I think due in part because we were diagnosed right around the same age and had that same kind of young woman experience and, and dealing with, you know, all of that. Um, how has the, have you gone into menopause? How has that, have you handled that and those symptoms? So I remember being in the hospital and I had these, um, wraps on my legs to, um, help move blood to keep me from having a blood clot. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I'd be like, oh my goodness, I'm so hot. I'm so itchy. Like my legs are itchy because you know, the morphine and the drugs. So my doctor comes in, you know, a little while later and he's like, where are your leg things? And I was like, oh, they're making me so hot. And he goes, oh, Morgan, no, that's, that's your menopause. You're having hot flashes. And I was Mm -hmm. like, like already. I don't even get like a week. (laughs) (laughs) There's no reprieve. (laughs) Oh man. Like pretty much the minute we took your ovaries out, you started menopause. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I had surgical menopause. It was rough. Um, at first the hot flashes were really intense. Um, and then chemo would exaggerate the hot flashes. Mm -hmm. They would be really intense for a couple of days after treatment. But since I've started, um, the hormone blockers, they've started to kind of subside. Now I maybe get like one or two a day. It's always funny when I'm around, um, older women and I like take my cardigan off and I'll be like, Oh, hot flash. And they look at me and they're like, Oh honey, you're way too young for hot flashes. And I'm like, unfortunately, no. <laughs> believe it or not, I'm in menopause. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, you, you mentioned your mom a couple times. Did you feel like you had a pretty great support system? Um, how did she react? Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, As a mom, I, I like to hear <laughs> other stories. I'm very lucky to have a nurse for a mom. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was helpful. Um, and my dad had actually retired about um, the same time that I got sick. It just, mm. it happened to go that way. It wasn't mm-hmm. on purpose. Um, so when I came home from surgery, I went and lived with them for a few months. Um, they, I, you know, I couldn't really do a lot on my own. At the time I was living with my sister, but Um, our house had a lot more stairs and Mm. she went to work. So my dad was home all day. So it made sense for me to kind of be with him. And then once I got further into treatment, what I would usually do is I'd go home, um, for like a week or two when I felt good to my, you know, house with my sister. And then while I was, you know, in the thick of it from chemo side effects, I'd be at their house. Um, he'd help me make sure that I ate something that day that I was hydrating and getting my rest and things like that. So I was, I'm really lucky to have such a great support system. Um, my sister's at the time boyfriend now husband actually moved in with us as I was finishing up chemo right before COVID started, like last weekend of February. But, um, you know, they've been together so long. He's a brother to me even before Mm -hmm. they were married. So, um, it just, you know, you think like, okay, last treatment I'm better, but it, it took probably six months or more Mm -hmm. to really start feeling like myself again. Um, so he was very helpful around the house. You know, I, I couldn't really do much cleaning or things like that. So I needed my family to help me with that. Um, my mom was actually the one that told me I had stage four cancer. Um, 
Yeah. So what happened was I had um, a CAT scan to figure out how far it had spread. And I was heading to a baby shower in South Carolina the next day. So the doctor was calling me while I was on the plane to schedule my surgery for the next day. Um, Mm. But I was out of state. So she ended up, because I wasn't answering my phone, she called my parents. And typically, you know, that's not really the way this would go. They would normally, I'm an adult. My mom, Mm. I have always signed off that she can know all of my medical information. Um, But, you know, generally they're not going to tell your mom when you're a 30 year old woman about (laughs) your illness, but um, we just have a very close relationship. She went to all of my appointments and she kind of begged Mm -hmm. her to tell her the results and um, for her to not call me while I was out of state because Mm. to get that news when I wasn't around my family would have been devastating. So when I came home from that trip, my whole family's at the house and I could tell they were all crying. And, you know, I, I had a feeling cause I, I saw in my portal that my surgery was moved up like two weeks and, uh, but I didn't know exactly what was going on. And so she and yeah. I put a glass of wine in a, in a Yeti tumbler and walked to a park and she told, told me what to expect and what my surgery was going to be like. And basically she had to tell me that if I did not have surgery, there was, you know, that was going to be the end of my life. If I wanted to have surgery, I could also, you know, I could have died during surgery. It was very intense. Um, I could have woken up obviously with bags everywhere, like, you know, and had a totally different quality of life than I was used to. Um, to me, it was a no brainer, you know, uh, Oh, you have to try was my thought. Um, yeah. I'm glad I did. <laughs> um, you know, some of my family members weren't sure if I should do it or not. They were worried that, you know, the end of my life would have been suffering, recovering from surgery, but mm-hmm. I was very lucky to have the surgeon that I did and have the outcome that I got. So. Yeah, that truly is incredible. And I, as someone who did receive their cancer diagnosis out of state alone, I can tell you that it's not fun. And it's, you know, one of those things that you just never think that that's going to be the phone call. And so, you don't. there's no way to prepare for it. There's no, you know, um, and I actually kind of had the opposite of, um, you know, it was great that your mom got to tell you. I actually called my brother and I was like, do I go home and tell them in person or do I call them right now? Like, what do I do? He was like, you idiot. You have to call them. You have to tell them, like, don't wait till you're, you know, you have to let them know. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's crazy that you can get just such a huge life, um, change all of a sudden in seconds over the phone. Um, and so, but I, I'm with you. I was kind of in the same boat with, well, you can do surgery. You cannot do surgery and try to save your fertility and try to do this. And I was like, I- I'm not having a baby tomorrow. So whatever, I'll figure that out later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You just wanted to be rid of the cancer. Yeah. Cause I just I did, was not comfortable knowing that it was there growing inside my body. Get it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly where I was too. Oh man. So Morgan, what is next for you? What is on the horizon? Ooh, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 
getting diagnosed so close to COVID was, was tough, right? I mean, I was very lucky that I had those six months to go through treatment and be able to have my family in, in the room with me while I was having treatment. My mom didn't miss one treatment. You know, she sat next to me. We watched, uh, below deck marathons, like crazy. It was the only thing we could agree on. Um, and then, you know, all the Benadryl would kick in. I'd fall asleep. She's still watching below deck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, and in hindsight, you know, at the time it was tough because all of a sudden I was like, all right, I'm done. My numbers are coming up. I can go back into the world. And then it was like, no, you can't. <laughs> but it, it forced me maybe to get that extra rest and build mm-hmm. my strength up mm-hmm. and, and all that. Um, but now you know, I've had four vaccines. I'm things seem to be getting better. I know there's still cases Mm -hmm. going around, but for the most part, they seem to be more mild. Um, practicing as much, you know, caution as I can, but I'm ready to live my life. I've been going to concerts. I've been going to the beach. I've been hanging out with my friends that I haven't seen, uh, much over the last few years. Yeah. Travel just, get back to it and live, yeah. live my life like, like I want to. <laughs> and then of course, that's an awesome outlook. Yeah. And then of course, advocating and spreading awareness, talking to wonderful women like you and, you know, getting the word out. <laughs> that's so important. It's so important to turn it around and get some good out of what you've been through and help other people. I know with Alex, just the fact that she was diagnosed so young and so many doctors said, oh, this isn't cancer. You're too young to have this kind of cancer. And I mean, they just kept telling her that. And that made it all the more shocking when she got the diagnosis. So it's really a great effort to try to let, especially young folks know, young women know that it's a possibility. We're not trying to frighten you, but we want you to be aware. I feel like my biggest takeaway from all of this is when you're sitting with your doctor to just try and talk to them as much and about what you're experiencing as you can, as uncomfortable Mm -hmm. as talking about your period can be, you know, (laughs) we, we all should become more comfortable with it. Um, you know, just because, and you know, a lot of people try and say like, no, you're normal, but I don't like that because my normal wasn't normal, you know, like, right. Just because my normal is my normal doesn't mean that it's okay. Right. So we have to, you know, I, I remember hearing you say something about like, you know, the, the, two tablespoons or whatever of, of, (laughs) right. (laughs) You know, and I didn't know that that could, I mean, I don't know for sure that that was a sign that things were going on or going Mm -hmm. wrong. Um, we'll never really know how mine started. Like maybe I did have endometriosis, but then grew into this and we had no idea, but, Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's my biggest thing I think that I've learned and try and and share with my friends, you know, talk to your doctors and ask them for ultrasounds and, you know, Mm -hmm. try and learn as much about your own body as you can. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's so important that, um, you know, to, to be able to advocate for yourself, but also in, in an effort to do that, you have to have language around it. And I think oftentimes we as young women don't have the language. We're not given, you know, all of 
what we need to be able to express what's happening. Um, and, you know, a doctor hears, I have heavy periods. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, you know what? I was sitting on an international flight with a super tampon and two overnight pads, and I still had to change it every 30 minutes. So it's probably not okay. I think there there's a just a social um, mindset that doctors are specialists. They're knowledgeable. They know more than we do. And so we oftentimes don't advocate for ourselves because we don't see it or we, we do see it as we're kind of bucking the doctor. Um, he already know he knows me, he examined me, he, you know, and I think we, it's no dissing to doctors whatsoever. We have doctors in our family and we have friends who are doctors and we respect them um, so much and, and honor what they do, but uh, they don't know us. Nobody knows our body like we do. And so it's only fair to them to give them the tools they need than to exercise their special, you know, skills so that they can figure it out. It's just kind of a roadblock we've got to get past. Yeah, I think that it's definitely, you know, no, not everybody's textbook, right? We've talked about that, how we all have little nuances. And um, if I tell you this is not something my body normally does, or this is not how heavy my period normally is, or, you know, whatever it might be, um, I hope that, and I think newer doctors, newer in training doctors um, are more apt to accept that, not to like bash older doctors, because that's not the case. But um, I mean, I know, you know, my mom's best friend's husband is an OB-GYN and then we have a cousin who's an OB-GYN and they both said they did not know any patient in the, I don't know, combined 60, 70 years of experience that they had together who was as young as I was when I was diagnosed with uterine cancer. They, and, you know, in all the women they saw, they never saw that. It was always postmenopausal. And so it just goes to show that it's not really accurate anymore. And I, you know, I'm sure you have found a network. Um, I immediately, when I couldn't sleep that night when I was alone and, um, I found a Facebook group and there are thousands of women, thousands who are, and it's young women specifically for this, just this tiny type of cancer, not all gynecologic cancers, not, you know, um, and so I imagine it's very similar for you. Well, and I have a former student who is an oncologist here in Florida, and she said that um, more and more the age is lowering. They're diagnosing younger and younger women. So somehow the protocol has to catch up with that so that new doctors coming in don't do what the doctors did to Alex and say, ah, oh, you're too young. We're, we're just sending this to pathology just as, a, you know, a routine. You don't have cancer. Um, you, they just cannot say that to patients um, in all good conscience anymore. Yeah, for sure. Y'all can't see me, but my head is bobbing like a bobblehead <laughs> right now. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with what you guys are saying. Um, and, you know, it, it's changing. Um, my doctor, my surgeon was one of the best in the country. Mm -hmm. And she had an MRI report that said my ovaries were over seven centimeters. Mm. Typical ovary is about three centimeters, about the size of an almond. And she, you know, pokes my belly like doctors do when you go to an OBGYN. And she goes, I don't feel a seven centimeter ovary. Wow. And by the time they came out, they were almost 10. So 
even the best doctors in the country, not necessarily are not that she made a mistake, right? I'm not saying that at all, but like the tools available to them are not always, you know, as reliable as we want to think they are. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's just a matter of, of learning for ourselves, like what we should and should not be asking about. Well, I guess there's nothing we shouldn't be asking about. Is, <laughs> right. Is the right moral yeah. the story. <laughs> well, yeah. like you said, what they're used to is palpating your abdomen and seeing how everything feels. Well, a, a person might, their, their physiology may just be such that you can't feel what you need to feel. So if there isn't another tool in place or available, they're going to miss it. You can't right. call that a mistake. It's just the the way it all worked out. It yeah. didn't work out. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And just like with, you know, pop smears, we know, and we talked to, um, there's a really great group of um, folks out of Australia who are working with the WHO on um, uh, cervical cancer prevention and eradication um, and elimination. Um, and that's awesome that pap smears diagnose cervical cancer. They know that HPV is the number one leading cause of cervical cancer. And there there's a vaccine and they're, you know, they have all of these tools and that's amazing. I'm so happy for them. Let's start work on is there a way to prevent ovarian cancer? Is there a way to prevent uterine cancer? I mean, currently you can get, um, you know, a DNC or something similar for uterine cancer to diagnose. And that's often how people get pre-cancer diagnosis as well. Could but with you, ovarian um, cancer. Could you explain to me what a DNC is, please? Sorry. Sure. Yeah. So no, that's fine. So it's a dilation and cuterage. So they dilate your cervix and they take a long wand with like a scratchy head and scrape out all of the interior of your uterus. So when I had my um, uh, internal ultrasound um, and they said, hmm, your lining's really thick, that's an indicator. And then also I had what they perceived were fibroids that ended up being tumors. Um, And even, and mom can speak more to this because the doctor came and spoke to her after that procedure. Um, But he might, the doctor who performed that said that he had never seen uh, he called it a fibroid at the time, but now we know it was a tumor that big in anyone. Um, and I don't know how he described it other than that. Um, well, he showed me the picture on his little um, computer, um, the picture of before and after. And the before was just unrecognizable because of the tumors. That's really all you saw. You didn't see the uterus or the lining. Um, it was it was shocking. Really. And even even at that, he said to me, we're going to send this to pathology, but I'm sure it's not cancer <laughs> because she's just too young to have uterine cancer. You know, yeah. and, you know, I will say to his credit and I, I don't see this doctor anymore because I now see just my oncologist for my gynecologic exams. Um, but this doctor, he made it a point um, to have me come in for an appointment after my diagnosis, even after I was transferred to oncology, um, to apologize. He, yes, he made a point. He said, I need you to come in. I need to see you, you know, to talk about some things. And he just fell over himself. And I didn't expect that. Um, but he was like, I made it, I made a grave error. I made a mistake. And I'm so sorry that you're having to go through this. I'm glad we caught it when we did. Um, and I'm very grateful that he took the steps he needed, even though he didn't believe it was. And even though he said, Oh, you don't have cancer. Um, 
he still took the necessary precautions. He sent it off to pathology. He did what he needed to do so that I did get a diagnosis. Um, but yeah, I was very, very, um, just kind of sidelined when he was like, I just want to apologize, but good on him. I hope he learns. I hope other people in his practice learn, um, and continue, um, just educating themselves on different things because we have pap smears and, you know, we can do DNCs, but they're not, um, fun. I mean, it's a, it's a surgery. They put you out, you're, you know, you're groggy. It's, it's a, um, you know, you go home that same day, um, and there it's all internal. So there's not any scarring or healing like that. Um, but I know women who they were diagnosed with like a pre-cancer. And so they haven't been recommended for hysterectomy and they have DNCs every couple months. Mm. And I just, I can't imagine, you know, um, having to go through that procedure and it's not particularly painful necessary or anything like that, but just the trauma of like, okay, I'm going back under anesthesia. I'm going back through this process. I'm having to, and then like you were talking about the anxiety, it could come back that it's cancer. It could come back that it's progressed. And so there's, um, there's just so much surrounding it, but you know, we need testing for, there's currently no test for ovarian cancer unless they biopsy and biopsy is not cheap. And, you know, you have to jump through hoops with insurance to get biopsies approved. And especially if you say I have a 30 year old who's bloated, what insurance is going to say, yeah, that sounds like it could be ovarian cancer. Let's, you know, let's do a biopsy. It's just, it's not common practice. That's going to (laughs) happen. Right. So, man, you have such an incredible story. You do, Morgan. You do. And I'm so grateful to have been connected with you and to know you. Um, I truly am sorry that this is how we got connected and got to know one another. Um, But it really is uh, very true that you meet some of the best people when you go through a challenge like like we have. Um, And I just wish you all the best that, you know, through your your hormone blocking and through your continued surveillance that you continue to do well. Um, we'll definitely keep following your story and we will look for that fundraiser in September and we'll blast it all <laughs> over our social media because we want you to achieve your goal. It's a, a very noble and worthy goal that we're um, help, happy to be a part of. Thank awesome. you. Yeah. I wish all the same to you. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. What a truly incredible story that Morgan has to share. And we are just so, so excited that we got connected with her. We are going to post all of um, Morgan's social accounts um, to our website and on our social media. And please be on the lookout in just a couple months for their fundraiser in September. Um, We're hoping to help them achieve their goal of raising $200,000 for ovarian cancer research um, because we know how important it is. As always, you can find us on our website, www.downthereaware.com, as well as all social media platforms you can think of. We are Down There Aware. And if you know someone who has a story to share, or if you have a topic you want us to discuss or an in the news that you think um, you know we need to share to get the word out, don't hesitate to email us, downthereaware at gmail.com. Or you can always DM us on any of our social media accounts. Thanks for listening.